Holy Father, thank you for today. Thank you for this beautiful day. Thank you for holding off the rain until later so that we can uh, come together and be in your house. As was mentioned earlier, it's chilly outside, but it's nice and warm in here. We thank you for the simple things like heat uh, in this building uh, that, that we often take for granted. But we also know that it's warm in here because your Holy Spirit is here. You are here uh, moving, working, leading among us. Uh, pointing out what you want to teach us, uh, growing us, stretching us, kicking and screaming sometimes, but making us more and more into the image of your Son. Building your kingdom, brick by brick, stone by stone, using us, imperfect, fallen, always failing people. But in this way, you are glorified the utmost. May we continue to bear witness and your light to this community, and to this world. We thank you for your word, that it never changes, that is always relevant, always meaningful, always powerful, no matter what time, day, culture we live in. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever, and we are grateful for that. In Jesus' name, amen. When one looks at history... There are some mind-boggling events that took place at the same time or around the same time that you would not think at all happened at the same time. For instance, let me, I'll, I'll explain here. We know the French guillotine, the execution device, to be mostly connected to the French Revolution, right? The, la the very last execution via guillotine in France happened in the same year as the first Star Wars movie came out in 1977. That's just, that's nuts, right? That that happened all the way up until that point. Those two historical events just don't seem to go together at all. We take knowledge of the existence of dinosaurs as commonplace today. Cartoon versions of them are everywhere. It's all over Netflix. Here's something a little hard to believe. George Washington died in 1799. The first dinosaur fossil wasn't discovered until 1824. So what does this tell us? That the general of the entire Continental Army from start to finish of the Revolutionary War, who kept soldiers enlisted during the brutal winter in Valley Forge with a simple speech, and the first president of the United States never knew that dinosaurs existed. John Tyler, the 10th president of America, was born in 1790. Believe it or not, as of 2018, only three years ago, he had two living grandchildren. Yes, I said grandchildren. Not great, 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 great grandchildren. Grandchildren. Tyler was born in, uh, Tyler was 63 when his son Lion was born, and Lion was 71 when his sons were born in 1924 and 1928. I looked it up. The grandson born, yeah, how would you like that? Was two sons at 71. Anybody here want to sign up for that? Uh, I, I looked it up. The one grandson born in 1928, Harrison Ruffin Tyler, is still living today at 93, a direct descendant of uh, President Tyler. This last one is just unbelievable. I, I, I did a double take when I read this. The Secret Service the group responsible for protecting the President of the United States' life was founded just a few months after Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. Only a few months. In fact, the legislation was on Lincoln's desk the night he died. 
Imagine how that might have impacted U.S. history if Lincoln had, was protected by a Secret Service group, had gotten a chance to sign the legislation, and the Secret Service was in place before the assassination attempt. Like I said, I, that was just unbelievable for me. All of these historical connections and events are simply hard for us to wrap our minds around. Now, that obviously doesn't mean that they didn't happen. It's just hard for us to believe. This morning, we're, we're, we're picking back up in Jesus' conversation with the rabbi, Pharisee, and Sanhedrin member Nicodemus. Even though Nicodemus was highly educated and very intelligent when it came to the Jewish scriptures, he just could not wrap his mind around and believe what mind-boggling truth Jesus was revealing to him. In fact, Jesus calls Nicodemus out in our passage this morning and says, you're a teacher of the Jewish scriptures and still this is unbelievable to you? To recap from a couple of weeks ago, the epitome of human wisdom and knowledge, a man named Nicodemus comes to visit Jesus at night because he didn't want any of his other highly influential peers knowing that he was visiting this fringe religious leader from Nazareth. He addresses Jesus on the same level as him, even though that was a stretch for him, because Jesus was not formally trained as a rabbi, because it never entered his mind that Jesus could be any more than that. The irony of all of this is that this highly trained rabbi is being schooled by this untrained fringe teacher from the boondocks who is stirring up enough attention to get the Pharisees and Sanhedrin to go investigate. Jesus doesn't pull any punches in his conversation with Nicodemus and gets straight to the point. In verse 3, he says, straight, uh, he goes straight to, unless someone is born again, regardless of how well they follow the Jewish law, which is what the Pharisees had based their entire belief system on, he or she cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. But to Nicodemus, who could only wrap his mind around the pharisaical mindset of one working his way into heaven based on how well he or she obeyed the Jewish law, this made absolutely no sense. In fact, the only possibility Nicodemus could even think was anything close to a, to a reality, religious-wise, was this absurd idea that Jesus was referring to some kind of physical rebirth. And because that was so ridiculous sounding, he asks Jesus in verse 4, surely you're not referring to a physical rebirth, right? That's just ludicrous. Jesus, already a million steps ahead of Nicodemus, had his response locked and loaded. Nicodemus could only conceive of a religious conversion from pagan Gentile to Jewish through baptism. That's the only thing he could conceive of, that baptism was only reserved from somebody, for somebody who was thoroughly pagan Gentile and converting to Judaism. It did not enter his mind that an already Jewish person have the need to be baptized at all. Yet that's what another fringe prophet named John had been yelling about in the wilderness along the banks of the Jordan River. He had been declaring to already Jewish people for a little while now that it did not matter how well or how badly they followed the Jewish law that mattered to God. All that mattered to God was repentance. And John was baptizing people to show that they had repented and turned from their sin and turned towards walking towards God. Nicodemus wanted to forget any of that was happening, 
over at the Jordan River. But Jesus called that to the forefront of their conversation. In verse 5, Jesus is basically asking Nicodemus, you know that guy on the bank of the Jordan River that you wish would just go away, that he would just shut up and disappear? Not only is his message true and right, that repentance is the first step towards salvation from God and entrance into heaven, but I'm confirming that. It has absolutely nothing to do with how well or how badly one follows all the rules. One needs to first repent of their sin before God, represented by the water of baptism, and to be given the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus is prophesying a little bit here in that the Holy Spirit wouldn't be given to believers in Jesus until the day of Pentecost, a little while after his ascension. But he's setting up for how it would be for the next 2,000 years, all the way up through today. What Jesus is revealing to both Nicodemus here and any other person, including us, reading these words for the past 2,000 years is that there is only one way to heaven. Only one way. It has nothing to do with how self-righteous you are, like Nicodemus firmly believed. It has nothing to do with how many good things you do to try to outweigh the bad. It has nothing to do with how good you think you are. As Jesus is very clear about in verse 7, every single person needs to be born again or born from above in order to enter heaven. Now, what does that mean? Jesus has already alluded to that in verse 5. Every single person must come to a place in their lives where they come before God in recognition that their sin separates them from God and there's nothing they can do to make up for it, earn heaven on their own, or measure up to what God has determined as righteous enough. At that point, Every person needs to accept that God's word is very clear that the just payment for our sin is death, both physical death and the second death or banishment to hell for all of eternity. Knowing that we're helpless to escape that on our own, every single person has to accept and take for him or herself that Jesus, as God and therefore sinless, paid that death penalty as a substitute on our behalf. To pay that debt, we had no hope to pay. Once we accept that for ourselves, individually and personally, we also accept Jesus as Lord or King over the rest of our lives, living to please Him and be guided by Him. That repentance or turning from our lives led by sin and selfishness is represented by being born of water, the symbol of baptism in verse 5. When we accept Jesus as both the Savior from our personal sin and make him the king over the rest of our personal lives, God's word says that the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, immediately comes and makes a home within us, indwelling us to teach us, guide us, convict us, comfort us, and give us the peace, love, joy, and all the other fruits of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit starts to go to work on our lives, starts to go to work on our relationships, our marriages, our families, and transforms the whole way we think, process through things, and ultimately see the entire world. 
That's a brand new spiritual birth, as Jesus refers to in verse 5 as being born of the Spirit. All of that is wrapped up in the understanding of what being born again really means. That's what that really means. Now, as Jesus also notes in verse 8, just as the wind is completely out of any human's control and remains solely in God's control, his whole movement of who will accept this gift of heaven, the Holy Spirit, and eternal life is completely in his control as well. As the Apostle Paul writes elsewhere, those who God has chosen to churn the leading of the Holy Spirit within and call to repentance and salvation will end up doing so in his timing. Those he hasn't chosen simply will not. Long story short, while a hard pill to swallow and something we will never fully understand, we just have to trust God with it and be grateful if our spiritual eyes have been opened to accept that truth for ourselves and say, thank you, God, for showing it to me and for reaching out to me and for saving me. Now, I went through all of that, not only as a review to get all of us caught up and on the same page together, but also to show just how opposite of an entire worldview what Jesus was presenting to Nicodemus's thoroughly pharisaical mindset really was. It's no wonder, then, that Nicodemus responds to all of this with what he does in verse 9, which is what we're picking up in today. So, if you brought your Bible with you, please turn to John chapter 3. If you haven't already, we're going to be picking up in verse 9. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, that's fine. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to John chapter 3. It's in the New Testament. You can look it up in the table of contents or just keep flipping forward. Uh, you see Matthew, then Mark, then Luke. You know you're close then. Then the next book is John. John chapter 3, verse 9, or look this up. It might be easier to type, just type it in, in in your Bible app on your smartphone. John chapter 3, verse 9, this is what we read. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? As we can see, Nicodemus' question in verse 9 is not at all one about the feasibility of everything Jesus has revealed. He just simply can't believe it. It's as if he's saying, what in the world are you talking about? Everything he had been taught his entire life is being completely thrown out the window by this Jesus of Nazareth. Nicodemus' response is very similar to his response in verse 4. That what he's hearing is just so absurd, he cannot believe what he's hearing, and more or less responds with, surely you can't be serious. How in the world can anything you're saying actually be true? Jesus knows exactly what he's talking about and why we'll see in a minute. Jesus responds with the same level of disbelief that Nicodemus has been showing him in verse 10. Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Here was this man who had received years of training in the Jewish scriptures and then had taught what was in the Jewish scriptures for years and yet he had no clue what Jesus was talking about nor see any connection to what the prophets had revealed over 400 years before. Even all the way back 
thousands of years ago to when God kicked the very first two humans out of the Garden of Eden. He revealed that he would be sending a deliverer to save Eve's descendants from sin and the kingdom of Satan. Hundreds of years before the law was even given to Moses, a man named Abraham was saved from his sin through his faith in God's promises and the one who made them. When God first gave Moses the Jewish law that Nicodemus and all the other Pharisees had replaced God with, God did so with the warning, what I really care about is that you love me first. That's what I really care about. That's what will save you from your sin. Out of your love for me, do I then want you to follow all of my commands in this law? The whole sacrificial system always pointed to a deliverer who would save people from their sin permanently instead of every year. When God's chosen people kept losing track of that foundation, God reminded them, what I really care about is that you reflect who I am. I don't really care about half-hearted sacrifices. In fact, I don't care about them at all. What I care about is what's going on in your heart and that you're reflecting who I am. And prophet after prophet after prophet revealed a bit more specifically who this deliverer or Messiah would be. He would be the deliverer. He would be the sacrifice. He would die but not see decay. He would reveal salvation to both God's people and the rest of the Gentile world. He would be the messianic king and the royal bloodline of David, and he would be God himself. Most importantly, if Nicodemus or any of the other rabbis, Pharisees, or members of the Sanhedrin had paid attention to these words, nothing Jesus said just now to Nicodemus should have been any surprise. These words were written about 800 years before Jesus was born. 800 years. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped, so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave, but it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yeah, when his sin is made an offering for sin, when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life. And the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous. Why? For he will bear all their sins. If any of these rabbis had paid attention to any of these words, anything that Jesus had just said to Nicodemus would not be surprising at all. Those words were written down about 800 years before Jesus. 
The fulfillment by Jesus. You read that and you think, is this out of the Gospels? Is this just describing what happened at the crucifixion? The fulfillment by Jesus is just simply incredibly unbelievable, isn't it? And yet it was all fulfilled perfectly. You read through all that prophecy and you can go over in your mind how every single one of those things was fulfilled perfectly. In direct connection to our passage this morning, again, if Nicodemus had been paying attention, he would have clearly seen that it had absolutely nothing to do with anyone being justified or legally seen as righteous in God's eyes on how well they obeyed the Jewish law. Nicodemus should have seen and should have known that there needed to be a deliverer who would die, be buried like a criminal in a rich man's grave, and the entire purpose of it would be to, as he was sinless himself, bear everyone else's sins so that many could be counted righteous based only on that deliverer's death. Not only that, but Isaiah here references the fact that though this deliverer would be killed and buried, that that what follows is that he would also enjoy a long life and see his descendants. How is this possible? The deliverer would have to come back to life in order for that to be possible. Right? The deliverer would have to come back to life and then be able to see his many, many descendants of faith. This is why Jesus responds with, how in the world, I'm just sitting here in disbelief, how in the world can you not wrap your mind around this at all? This prophecy has existed for 800 years, and you've no doubt taught on it many times in your lifetime. Jesus follows this up with verse 11. Truly, truly, I say to you, what, we speak of what we know and testify of what we, what we see what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. Now, who in the world is Jesus referring to when he says we in connection with what he's already referenced? As one biblical scholar noted, the guys, one of whom Jesus just alluded to, is who he's talking to when he says we. All of those prophets, hundreds of years before, who said the exact Same thing, Jesus is simply confirming most of who ended up the same exact way Jesus himself would end up. Nothing Jesus is saying is any different than what Israel and all of humanity, really, ever since God was divvying up curses on the border of the Garden of Eden, have heard. And so none of it should be a surprise nor something to not believe. The problem was that Nicodemus and all the other teachers of God's word did not accept any of it. That was the problem. They held firm in their minds that one needed to obey not only the original law, but all the other man-made pharisaical rules tacked onto it in order to be saved. Why? This is why. Because that is humanity's default belief. Being able to control one's life and one's eternal destiny. That is humanity's default belief. In addition to this pharisaical way of thinking, look at every other belief system that's ever existed around the world. If you boil all of them down, you're going to come to the same exact basic belief that you can control your eternal destiny. 
Boil them all down, and that's what you'll end up with. Think about it. If you follow the five pillars of Islam, the dietary rules, the prayers towards Mecca, and all the commands, for the most part, you achieve paradise. At the heart of Hinduism, Buddhism, and any form of New Ageism is the belief that if you be as good of a person as possible, you're reincarnated into a better type of being. That's at the heart of any kind of belief in karma. You get rewarded for good behavior and punished for bad behavior. Any nominal American loosely Catholic-based belief is the same exact thing. You need to believe in God, generally be a good person, and do good works to earn heaven. And the Pharisaical mindset still pervades any version of Judaism minus Messianic Judaism today. So when someone claims, oh, well, all the world religions are basically the same. Believe in something, don't be a bad person, and try to be a good person. They're absolutely right. They are all basically the same. All but one. The one and only belief system that relies completely on an acceptance that it's impossible for you to do anything to earn your way into paradise or heaven and you need someone to rescue you by taking your place and all you do is come to a place in your life where you accept that for yourself is biblical Christianity. That's the one and only difference. It goes completely against human nature, and what we naturally default to as humans. It's why Nicodemus simply could not see past what he had been conditioned to see all of his entire life, that his eternity was completely out of his control. All he could do was let everything he ever knew go, answer God's call to repent, and accept Jesus as the deliverer from his sin. It's just as true today. It's all any of us can do. And this is the most basic spiritual truth that any of us have to come to grips with. See, it's not enough to simply say you believe in God. You know why? Satan believes in God. We have to repent and take Jesus as our salvation. Jesus had already tried to describe this heavenly truth by way of using an earthly analogy of the wind, but Nicodemus still didn't understand. As one biblical scholar pointed out, how could Nicodemus even begin to understand more heavenly truths, such as the Trinity, Jesus as God, also becoming fully man, or Jesus then rising from the dead and ascending back to heaven? This is what Jesus means when he says in verse 12, If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? All of the training and education Nicodemus had for his entire life was a waste if he could not even grasp the most basic truth of salvation from sin. If he could not wrap his mind around that, there was no way he was going to be able to understand God existing as three in one and the Son of God's divine and human nature. In verse 13, as noted by one biblical scholar, Jesus is connecting back to another conversation he had had with someone previously. That conversation with a man named Nathaniel had also started with unbelief. But the huge difference was that because of one simple earthly revelation, that man instantly believed in God, believed in Jesus. Nicodemus, on the other hand, after an earthly revelation by Jesus, 
was still just as hard-headed about everything. That connection to the conversation with Nathaniel is this, verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. In the conversation with Nathaniel, Jesus revealed himself as the true fulfillment of the latter in the dream Jacob, the father of the nation of Israel, had had, on which angels ascended to and descended from heaven. In that connection, Jesus revealed that he was the, on, the one and only bridge, he was the one and only road, the one and only ladder to gaining entrance into heaven. In literary and thematic similarity, the Apostle John records Jesus drawing upon that very same imagery here in his conversation with Nicodemus. The Son of Man was a term used by the Old Testament prophets as another description of the coming messianic deliverer and king. This being would have both divine and human characteristics. This is seen most clearly in Daniel 7. As my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient one and was led into his presence. He was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. This is most likely what Jesus is referencing here to Nicodemus when he refers to himself as the Son of Man. Not only has Jesus, as the Son of God and the Son of Man, descended from heaven, he will ascend back to heaven, and he's in the very presence of the Ancient of Days, God the Father. So anything Jesus explains to Nicodemus, or anyone else for that matter, has been personally witnessed by Jesus, and Jesus is the one who God the Father has declared will be given all the authority, honor, and sovereignty over the entire world. There is no greater authority. But something must happen first before all of that can come to pass. That's something Jesus reveals in verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be, be lifted up. In keeping with this concept of ascension and elevation, Jesus brings the understanding of his ascension into a whole new other light. He's already referred to himself as the one whom Daniel saw and prophesied about, the king over the entire world, through his descent from and subsequent ascension back to heaven. But one more type of elevation must happen in between that descent and ascension. That's what Jesus describes in verse 14. In Numbers 21, the, the Israelites were complaining about all that God had miraculously provided for them once again. It wasn't just that they were complaining. God had provided manna for them day after day through miraculous intervention. And they were complaining about the fact that they didn't want to eat it anymore. It was the height, they're acting like five-year-olds. It was the height of human ungratefulness. So in discipline of them as his children, God sent a plague of poisonous snakes among the Israelite camp. 
In distress, as many people were dying from these snake bites, the people cried out to Moses that they had sinned and for Moses to intercede on their behalf to God to forgive them and take away the snakes. In response, God told Moses to construct a serpent made out of bronze and lift it up on a pole. Numbers 21 says that God said that anyone who looked at that serpent would be healed and not die. You see the connection that Jesus is making to himself here? It's not directly said in the Numbers 21 account, but for one to look up at the serpent, what did they have to be feeling in their heart? They had to be feeling regret, that they knew they had sinned, that they knew they were repenting of that selfish mindset and they were seeking God's forgiveness. They then showed this repentance by an action, looking at the serpent. If you didn't believe it could work or you didn't need forgiveness or that you didn't, hadn't done anything wrong, you would simply continue to receive what everyone was receiving out of consequence. Jesus likened this bronze serpent to himself in that in keeping with everything else, he had already revealed to Nicodemus, one must repent. One must come to the recognition that their sin must lead them to repentance. It wasn't enough that one just felt bad. That recognition must be manifested in the physical action of repentance. What did that physical action of repentance look like according to the words directly out of Jesus' mouth? That one must repent of their sin and look to Jesus and only Jesus for that forgiveness, salvation, and healing. What will happen at that point? Verse 15. So that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. What may seem like random things Jesus says to Nicodemus, in reality, all connects to each other. And it all points to the foundational truth that we all must come to grips with. If you think you're good enough on your own, or that you can earn heaven on your own, you will never get there. Like Nicodemus, you may have thought this was the way, you may have thought this was the way to heaven your entire life. But now you know the truth, straight out of God's word. So what are you going to do with the truth now? You have to give up that entire worldview and give in to answering God's call to repentance. If you've never done that, go to God in prayer. Tell him that you recognize that your sin makes it impossible to be with him, both in this life and the next. Repent or turn away from that life directed by sin and selfishness and look to Jesus to accept him as the substitute for your sin, death, debt payment that he paid it as a sinless being as God, and that he rose again to forgive you and give you salvation from that sin. Tell God that you make Jesus your king over the rest of your life. Then and only then will you be born from above, given a new spiritual birth, given the Holy Spirit, and given the 100% full assurance that you will be with Jesus for all of eternity when you take your last breath. When we do that, verse 15 again, whoever believes in him, whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this straight to the point, very powerful passage.
We thank you that Jesus didn't beat around the bush, didn't tiptoe around anything. He went straight straight for it. Lord, we thank you that he didn't pull any punches with Nicodemus. Because what it does is it goes straight to the source for us today, too. We can know what the full truth is. If we have believed our entire lives that if we're just generally a good enough person and believe in God, we'll get into heaven, now we know the truth. That that simply is not the case. The only difference maker is when we come to God in prayer, repent of the life that we lived, and turn towards Jesus, asking him to forgive us of our sins because he paid that death payment on our behalf and make him the king over the rest of our lives. Then and only then will we be given the Holy Spirit as the seal, the down payment on our heavenly home. And we can look forward to that heavenly home with 100% full assurance. I pray that if there's anybody here who has not done that yet with their lives, that they would take a serious look deep within themselves and make that commitment to God today, even right now. Because we have no clue what's going to happen to us in this life. You walk out these doors and get hit by a car. We have no clue when it's your time to call us home. We have, no t- we have no clue when it's time for us to die. And Lord, I pray that we would do so, having put our faith and trust in you for the salvation of our sins. I pray all these things in Jesus' name.